There we go. You guys ready? Let's get this party started. All right, we are in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, working our way through slowly but surely following Paul's missionary journeys, really in the second half here. They're in Paul's third missionary journey. And so let's just dive in. If you have your Bibles, first 16 verses of chapter 20. I don't have it in your notes because it was just too much to put in there. So if you have it on your smartphone, your Bible, I will have it on the screen as well so you can, you can follow along. Starting in verse 1. When the uproar had ended, and that, that is really the riot that happened in Ephesus that John talked about last week when Paul, Paul was there. So when the uproar, uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secondus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. I feel like I'm always the one who gets these names, right? The... You can't plan this stuff. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. And five days later, joined the others in Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and, because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room, where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. I heard that, Steve. <laughs> when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down and threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Asos, where we're going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met it at Asos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail for there and arrived at Chios. The day after, we crossed over Samos, and then on the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church and our time together tonight, and I do pray, Lord, that your spirit would give me the words to say, to communicate, and I pray, Lord, that your spirit would meet each one of us in this room where we are at and help us to be drawn closer to you. I'm so grateful, Lord, for these stories of the faithful saints who followed you, who, who gave their lives willingly to proclaim the good news of your kingdom. And so, Lord, may we follow in their footsteps and continue to do that, to proclaim the goodness of our God, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. 
So you, you read through this section of Acts, and it's, it's almost, a, I mean, it's really a narrative just telling the story of where Paul went. And it almost seems like Luke is giving us an itinerary. This Paul went here, and then he went there, and he went there, and he went here. He left Ephesus, and he's on his way to Jerusalem, and these are the places that he stopped at. And we've looked at this map over and over again. I mean, it's crazy the amount of miles that Paul covers, not just in this trip, but if you count all three of Paul's missionary journeys together, not counting the fourth one where he's going to be taken to Rome, you're talking about a little over 7,500 miles, and a lot of that by foot. So to put that into perspective, west coast to the east coast is about 2,500 miles. Shorter if you go south, longer if you go north. And so that's like Paul going from west coast to east coast, back, and then back again. It really is just, I mean, it's a journey that took somewhere, you know, a little over 13 years for him to do. But this is a, a, a major journey for him. Now, when you read this story, there's, there's no way not to talk about Eutychus, even though Luke really kind of just throws it in. It's not really part of the main story of what's going on in here, but you can't, I mean, this is, this is kind of an amazing thing that happens, right? I mean, you, this guy falls out of the third story window and Paul brings him back to life. I think it's important when you read stories like this too, to, to make, take note of the details that the authors put in. Luke goes out of his way to mention a couple things. He says, it was late at night. So he's like, you know, setting the stage. Well, I, late at night, I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm tired. And he says, and there were lamps lit in the room. These are oil lamps. And where's Eutychus sitting? In the window. Where do you think those fumes are drafting out? Probably right by Eutychus in, in the window. But Paul, in Luke's language, goes on and on and on. And finally, Eutychus falls asleep, falls out the third story window, and he's dead. And he's not like mostly dead or partly dead, he's all the way dead. As a matter of fact, the Greek language is very specific. It's the Greek word nekros, which is, it means corpse. So this is, he is, he is fully dead, dead. When Paul goes down, throws himself on him and, and brings him back to life. He's alive, don't worry, this is great. And my favorite part of this whole story is what happens next. Paul says, all right, let's go have something to eat. He goes upstairs, he has something to eat, and then he goes right back to talking until daylight. You know, that's like if you, were, if you were in class that you just wanted to get out of and somebody got sick or something, you think, oh, great, we're out, we're out of class, you know. Paul's like, nope, we're coming back here until daylight. There goes, there goes the message. Here's your fun fact for the day. The name Eutychus, anybody want to take a guess on what that means? Lucky. Lucky. He's like the guy with one eye and a hook for a hand. We call Lucky. This is Eutychus. He is lucky. He found a third story winning. He's still alive. So that's, that's pretty good. There are some Jewish sects, the, 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 the Qumran, is the people actually who were, who were uh, holding the Dead Sea Scrolls as a Jewish group of people. They actually had stipulations in you know, reading the Torah in their, in their public readings. It was re really strict. If you fell asleep during their reading of the Torah, you, you would be excluded from that worship for 30 days. I said that this morning. I told everybody, you guys better be glad we don't institute the no sleep rule here on Sundays or this place would be a lot thinner. So I, I, do, I want to steal one thing from John's message last week. He did this so well. He said there's one thing, one really important thing, an overarching theme that goes throughout this entire text. 
And it is Paul's love and dedication for the church. That, that is what Luke is showing us in a number of different ways throughout this text. And when I say church, I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the, the people of God. The institution of the church doesn't even exist back then outside of the Jewish community. So Paul's love for the people of God goes above and beyond. And, and I want to give you 13 reasons you can see Paul's dedication and love for the church. I should be able to get through those 13 by midnight. You guys good? <laughs> Where's the third story? Can I fall out now? Here's your 13 reasons. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. 13 of our 27 letters in the New Testament were written by Paul. So almost half of our New Testament was encouragement, correction, doctrine, instruction, written to individual believers like Philemon and, and Titus, and written to churches in Rome and Ephesus. All, all of this is, is Paul's investment of his life into the people of God. I mean, that's what he spent the rest of his life doing after his conversion in Acts 9, is communicating the message of the gospel. So where does Paul's love for the church come from? It comes from Christ's love for the church. And Paul would write this in his letter in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. He said, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Paul is simply following in Jesus' footsteps in investing everything he has into the church in the same way that Jesus did. And I do, I do think it's important to, to ask ourselves, you know, to rewind and say, how did Paul get to this place that he's at right here? I mean, how in the world did he come to here? Because, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I put Paul up here on this pedestal of, you know, men who have this amazing experience with God, and he did, but he was a lot more similar in his relationship and his story of really church people than, than we might think reading a book right now, and I highly recommend it. Megan Hill is the author. It's called A Place to Belong. It's about the local church. She writes for a company called the Gospel Coalition, which is actually started by Timothy Keller. And uh, she's got a couple books. This one is just, it's really good about why the local church is important. And she says this about Paul. She says, Paul had a very complicated church story. And I think that's true for a lot of people. She says he was a religious kid, but rather than growing up into love for God's people, he worked against them. He hated the church, celebrated the death of her first martyr, that would be Stephen, and used all his energies to strike down Christ's beloved people wherever he could find them. Then, on his way to persecute the church, Christ appeared to him, and the direction of his life forever changed. Overnight, the church's enemy became the church's friend, and I would say one of the church's best friends. Now, you might, you know, not have that exact experience. You might not know somebody, maybe you do, who's had that experience where they really, they didn't want anything to do with the church until they actually met Jesus. And when Jesus changes your life, you, you want to be a part of this thing that other people 
are doing. It was one of the things that drew me to being a part of this community was seeing other people living in a way that Jesus was very active and alive in their lives. And I, wa- I wanted that. I knew it was greater than what I was settling for outside of here. See, I don't think that part of the story is too far from any of us. So when Luke describes the places that Paul's going, this is far more than an itinerary. This is a detailed, intentional list of the people and places that Paul was invested in, the people that Paul loved dearly. And he would write in his letters, oh, how I long to be with you, or I long to see you again. Over and over again, he would write that about the people that he spent time from. And it's, it's no mistake that Luke mentions by name the people that Paul is traveling with on this trip. He says he's got someone from Berea. He's got two people from Thessalonica and three people from the province of Asia, which includes Ephesus and Troas. Now, what, what do all those places have in common? They are all places that Paul traveled, he preached, and he began churches. And now he's grabbing men from those places and bringing them along on the missionary journey. I mean, Paul didn't like to do this stuff alone. When you find him alone, he's actually in a bad place oftentimes. But now he's got these guys and, and, he, and he is traveling, which is important because we do have to remember all of this, the, the church, all of it is still very new Paul knows that people are coming out of these backgrounds of, of Judaism or they're, they're walking away from worshiping Greek goddesses like Artemis and Ephesus and their lives are completely uprooted and changed. I mean, that's, that's part of the reason for the riot that happens in Ephesus just before this. Paul understood it wasn't just enough to help them understand that the way they were living wasn't correct he, he knew he had to come alongside them. So he couldn't, he couldn't just come and say, hey, what you're doing is, is, is false. It's not right. He had to come alongside them and help them understand what it looked like to walk with Jesus. Francis Schaeffer wrote, wrote a book, wrote a number of books, an author, great apologist really in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, one of my favorite authors, wrote a book called The God Who Is There. And he talks about this, about when you are going to go to somebody and and tell them that the worldview, the religion, whatever it is that they believe in is not correct, you better be willing to walk alongside them in rebuilding their lives or you're leaving them worse off than if you'd never talked to them. And he says this in his book, The God Who Is There. He says, every man has built a roof over his head to shield himself at the point of tension. Uh, Every one of us has a reasoning to protect us from the the insecurity of life. He says, the Christian, lovingly, must remove the shelter and allow the truth of the external world and of what man is to beat upon him. When the roof is off, each man must stand naked and wounded before the truth of what is. He must come to know that his roof is a false protection from the storm of what is. See, this is what Paul did every place he went. First in the synagogue with the Jewish religious leaders and then with the Gentiles going to them and saying, the way you're building your life is not true. And then he would walk alongside them, helping them rebuild with Christ as the foundation for their lives. He knew that was going to be a really difficult transition. 
And so when you read his letters, you see the emphasis, the importance that he puts on helping those churches figure out what it looks like to move forward. Paul knew that it was very important in what the leadership of each church looked like. And he writes about it. You can read the pastoral epistles, Titus and Timothy. And you can see Paul lays out very clear instruction on what leadership needs to look like in the church. It's why he was so hard on the churches that were not taking their new lives in Christ seriously. And they were allowing sin to just continue in their midst. Read First and Second Corinthians. It's why Paul elevated unity amongst people who disagreed in the churches, Jew, Gentile, slave-free, male, female, everyone needs to come together and share the table. Read Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians. And it's why Paul didn't take one missionary journey. He went back and back and back again. And if, and if he didn't give his life, he probably would have done it 12 times. But he knew he had to go back and help give them guidance from Antioch to Athens from Ephesus to Corinth, Philippi to Thessalonica, and back again to check on these people. One of the things Paul did so well in his love for the church was he was an encourager. Sometimes I wonder how much, you know, Barnabas, who he traveled with in his first mission, is the, his name means son of encouragement, and I wonder how much Barnabas has had an influence on Paul's encouragement for the church, but Paul goes out of his way regularly to encourage the church. I mean, it's in the very first two verses of our text today. It says, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area. And what does he do? He encourages them too. I mean, this is at the heart of Paul's ministry, going around and encouraging people that are trying to figure out how to start these new lives following Jesus. A few messages ago, I talked about how, how God encouraged Paul in Acts chapter 18. Paul just been really run out of Thessalonica and Berea, and he gets to Athens, not really a huge warm reception there. And then he makes his way down to, into Corinth, and he's by himself, and he, he says, I, I was weary when I arrived. And what does God do? God brings Priscilla and Aquila, and immediately he's encouraged. And then Silas and Timothy, and now he's got a gang, and he's got this this band of encouragement. And he knows it's not just for him, but the encouragement needs to be shared. And so he does that. Second Thessalonians chapter one. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. Wouldn't you like to get a letter from somebody like that? We ought to thank God for you because your faith is allowing us to boast in Jesus. I mean, the Thessalonians were, were going through a, a terrible time. And so this is, this is a great, great encouragement. And we also see Paul's love for the church in his sacrifice and his expectation that those who were in the community with him sacrificed as well. Philippians chapter 2. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. 
even if I am pouring myself out for you, I get to rejoice in that because that's God blessing you through me. You know, in reading this, it really got me to thinking about the idea of sacrifice and how much I think we really love the idea of sacrifice. We read and celebrate the stories of men and women who've sacrificed greatly over, over the, uh, our history. We, we turn them into movies, and, and so much so that if you have someone who gives their life for someone else, that character is often referred to as a Christ figure. So I think we love the idea of sacrifice, but mostly we love it when other people sacrifice for us. It's a lot harder for us to be the ones who are sacrificing because I think we become so used to getting what we want, how we want. That just becomes what's normal for us. And it's, it's hard to get into that frame of mind to say, you know, you know what, I, I'm, I'm putting other people above myself. How many of you in this room remember when ordering a cup of coffee, there were two options? Cream and sugar. Right? Maybe not even that. I, <laughs> when I travel and I'm driving, you know, I'm driving to Eldorado Hills or something or down Southern California to visit family, my family likes to stop and get coffee. It's not even really coffee. I guess it's kind of coffee um, at a store that will remain nameless. And um, I can't order anymore. I can't be like the go-between one where all these people in my car are telling me what they want because there's seven adjectives after the word. It doesn't even say coffee anymore. It's just some other thing with seven. And so I'm, I'm like, I'm done. I'm not doing that anymore. And I just hand the phone back and here, use the app. You guys order whatever you want so I don't mess it up. I know I'm sounding like the old, I just, I'm just making myself sound like the old guy, right? Who's like, get off my lawn. You know, that's, that's me with the coffee thing because I'm done translating all of these adjectives. So what does any of that have to do with sacrifice? Well, if sacrifice is about putting other people above yourself. Is that what you see when you're in the coffee store and somebody's seven adjective order gets messed up? Is sacrifice what you see in the church when two people don't get along? So you think that's where that starts to hit home for me. You know, one of the criticisms of the modern church right now is that it really has kind of morphed in from a place that we see in the New Testament where people came together and sacrificed greatly for one another. And, and it has kind of morphed into this idea of more of a, a consumer model of, of coming and consuming products, whether that's a children's ministry or music or, or worship or whatever, but it's had this change. And, and a lot of that goes back. This isn't just something that happened in this generation. This goes back probably 40 years or more when people's, the churches, the numbers started dropping and the people in the churches in leadership started talking about, well, how, do we, how are we going to get people back in the churches? What are we going to do to keep people you know, from, from just leaving the church and they decided to try and bring them in by other means other than just, you know, preaching and, and being committed to one another. Uh, Sky Jathani, he wrote a book called uh, the Ch when the Ch How the Church Became a Cruise Ship. 
And he's talking about this, really this model that goes back to what was the mind shift that led churches to start to kind of shift to this consumer mindset. And, and he says this, he says, the logic was simple. If the baby boomers did not feel the need to connect with God, then perhaps another felt need would draw them into the church. The need for community or entertainment or help with their children and marriages. While they consumed the upbeat music, support groups, dramas, and therapeutic sermons, the hope was that they would find God as well. And one of the unintended consequences in that is that the church, that we, we're guilty of training people to want to come and just consume whatever it is that we offer. And if they don't like it, they'll go find somewhere else where they do. And the family aspect of church is going away where people are just kind of committed until it doesn't work for them. You know, there's a fine line that you walk because I want to be engaging. I want music to be amazing. I want everybody to be excited to be here. But I also want that to be founded on the word of God. I don't ever want this, you know, bait and switch of church to be where we like invite people in with ice cream and popcorn. Do we have ice cream and popcorn? No. In the morning we have coffee and donuts, but that's, that, that's not. I don't want people to come in thinking one thing and then they get in here and then you tell them, hey, I'm glad you're here. This is great. Oh, by the way, this is really hard. Like we're actually going to need you to sacrifice some things. And I don't know if we told you that when you walked in. I, I, was at, I was at a church in Texas a number, number of years ago, and it, you know what? It's an amazing church. I truly believe they love Jesus. They're preaching uh, the good news. It is a good place, but in the sanctuary, it's probably like a 3,000-seat sanctuary, and I'm walking out to go to where the, down to the children's ministry area, which is a, a lower level, and they, and they had two slides going down into the children's ministry wing. And my first thought when I saw that was, wow, that's cool. My second thought was, can, can I take the slide, right? And then my third thought was, oh, is that what we need to do to get people in church? Is to offer them slides? You know, see, what I'm talking about is what began the church as an outcast group of people who were committed to following this guy, Jesus, who turned the world upside down, and he did it by giving his life for others. And so the church started to model that. And you can read Acts 2, 42 through 46, and see a very good picture of people that were committed to selling out themselves for the benefit of other people. And if we have flipped that model, and then churches become about what are we getting, we're missing the point. If that's our approach to church, we will always be disappointed because that's not the purpose of the church. And Paul, I think, that makes this point very well in his demonstration of his love for the church in expecting participation of the people around him. You know, one of the things that I, I, I love about Paul is he's traveling through all of these places. You know, one of the things that he's actually doing on this third missionary journey is he's taking a collection from some of the wealthier places to bring back money to poor churches in Jerusalem. I mean, these, these people, they're not going to fly to Jerusalem. They're not ever probably going to meet those people. And they're taking a collection to take back to a poor church because that was their commitment to the brothers and sisters of Christ, even the ones they would never meet. There are a number of ways to participate in this thing that we call 
church. And I know everyone's busy, but if, if Sunday, if this is the only opportunity that you have to rub shoulders with other people in the church, you are missing out on one of the greatest elements that God uses to bring about spiritual formation in our lives. The love and patience and care of the people that call this place home. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I see people out in town, whether I'm at the grocery store or, or anywhere, and I haven't seen them in church for a while, and I'll say to them, hey, it's good to see you. I, ha- I haven't seen you in a while. And, I, you know, I almost cringe when I say that because I know that a, a lot of them receive that as like a, yeah, yeah, I know. I haven't been in church. I'll be church. It's, and that's not what I'm communicating at all. What I'm trying to communicate is when, when you're not here, we miss out on you. See, because you have something. Every one of you has something that I don't. And when you're here, I get to benefit from what God has given you that I don't have. And so that's what I'm trying to communicate when I say, hey, I miss you. I haven't seen you in a while. Because that's what Paul communicated to the people that he was in ministry with. How I long to be with you. I want you. Please, you know, after Paul has this this knocked down drag out with Barnabas and ends up splitting over John Mark. You read later, what does he say? He says, please bring John Mark. He's helpful to me in the ministry. You know, we are not as good without John Mark as we are without him. And that's really, I think, what I'm trying to communicate here about the participation, about we aren't the same when you're not here. You know, uh, we have a number of uh, ways to just participate, community groups. There's Bible studies here almost every night of the week. We have a meal ministry, which I absolutely love. There are 31 people signed up in this meals ministry. I wish there were 331 people signed up. And it is an opportunity to, to cook a meal, buy a meal, whatever, bring it to somebody. They just had surgery, just had a baby, they're sick, they need, they need help. And this is, these are people are just showing up and 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 giving a meal. I've been on both sides of this. I've been able to bring a meal to someone and enjoy that time with them. And I've also had people bring meals to me. My wife just had surgery a month ago on both of her feet. And so she was laid up for this last month, couldn't drive and just kind of stuck. And so I'm running back and forth, taking kids. And man, I'll tell you what, I appreciate my my wife a thousand times more after this, knowing just how much uh, she contributes to our family. And but, I, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to, to manage all the things that, that I do and that she does. And I didn't ask to be put on the meal ministry list because I know that there are a number of families right now that really could use that help far more than, than I can. And even though I didn't ask to be on, put on that list, there were a number of people that just showed up and brought meals anyway. Like, I absolutely love that about our church. I had a conversation with a friend of mine after the second service, and he said to me, you're in trouble. I, I, why? I, I, I don't disagree. I'm probably in trouble for a lot of things. Why, why am I in trouble with you is my question. And he says, because you didn't tell us about needing a meal. And I said, well, you heard why I said that. And he said, you robbed me of blessing you. I was like, oh, you're right. I'll let you know. You know, I think this is the picture that Paul gives us uh, a few verses later. Hold on. Here in Acts. He says, In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So the question is, how, how do you 
loved the church. If Jesus loved the church and Paul loved the church, doesn't it make sense that we should love the church too? And I know I'm kind of, I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are here. But I think the question remains, is being here loving the church? And I would say, yes, it is. But it's kind of the door into loving the church on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and all the days in between. See, I, I know it's difficult. I know we're all busy. I know people have had bad experiences with, with people in the church. I understand why people don't want to commit it because they feel like they're going to get hurt. And that happens in the church. I think it was one of the things that hurt Paul the most, which was having people in the ministry with him leave him and, and hurt him. We see that again with John Mark and Barnabas. We also see that Paul writes to Timothy. He says this, he says, Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I, I can hear the hurt in those words. Someone who was dear and close to Paul has left him. But does that stop Paul from loving the church? Does that, was that where Paul said, all right, enough, I'm out. You people are difficult. I'm just, I'm going to go sit on the beach and drink margaritas. No, he continued to invest into the people that were difficult. Look, people, people hurt people. It happens. It happens in here just like it happens out there. I hope when it happens in here, we, we work towards a path of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of mercy, and, and grace so that people can see there is something different about the people who call Jesus Lord. You know, if you're hurt by people, the thing that I'm trying to say here is, I see this far too often. Someone in the church gets hurt by someone else, and they leave the church altogether. And what I'm saying is, just because someone hurts you doesn't mean you leave the church. Doesn't mean that you have to put yourself in the position to be abused or hurt by that person over and over again, but it means that you don't leave the community. Because I think to reject the church is to reject the people that God calls his bride. Jeremiah chapter 2, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy, set, set apart to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And now in the new covenant, the church is the bride of Christ and every one of us is sanctified every single day by the spirit of God. We're not perfect but we are his. As the book of Revelation reminds us, hallelujah for our Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who is that? That's the church. So how do we love the church? I think we love the church in the same way Jesus did. And the same way Paul did, sacrificially, with a lot of encouragement, and, and doing it together, not just on Sundays, but in every day of the week. And I think we follow the command that Jesus gave in John 13, where he said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. There's, there's our example. There's what we follow. There's what God has told us to do.
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That would be my hope for this church, that we would do just that, and not just on Sundays, but on every day in between. See, because God, his son Jesus, gave his life for the church. It's why we meet together on Sunday, the first day of the week, and break bread like Paul and his, his disciples did. It's why we share this table right here in front of us of communion, because we do it to be reminded not just of what God has done for us in the past, but like we just read in Revelation, what will happen in the future. And so every time we take this together, we, we get to come together as a community, as a body, to set aside our differences and to share the one thing that we do have in common, and that is the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior. So we are going to share communion tonight. We, we practice open communion here, which means that you don't need to be a member. What we will do is we will have you come up from the very back around the outside of the chairs, get the elements, and then go back up the center aisle and sit uh, down. And, and we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have the worship team play while we do that. And I would ask that you would just, as you get the elements, go back, sit down, and, and, and just worship. And then we will take the elements together. You can start that now.
when I take these elements, I'm reminded of the great sacrifice of my Lord and Savior. I'm reminded of encouragement, of sacrifice and participation, and what it costs God to bring the freedom and the redemption that each one of us knows. And so when we take this bread, as Jesus did with his closest friends, and reminded them to do this in remembrance of him, we take this bread and we remember the great sacrifice of the broken body of our Lord and Savior for our sins. We thank you, Jesus, and we do this in remembrance of you. In the same way, when we take the cup, we're reminded that the new covenant that we celebrate and look forward to took the blood of the very Son of God who willingly gave his life so that we could find redemption in him. And we take this not just to be reminded of the cross, but reminded of the new covenant where Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and we eagerly proclaim his reign until he comes again. And so we take this in remembrance and celebration of our Lord and Savior. Father God, we thank you for our time together tonight. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would encourage and draw each one of us to you, that you would be glorified. I pray, Lord, that as we, as we move into this week of Thanksgiving, that we, will, that we will sit and reflect in the many things that we have to be thankful for in you. No matter what we're going through in life, Father, your grace is sufficient. It is an amazing gift, and we can always th find things to be thankful for. I pray that you would lead us as we just sang, that your spirit would guide us in loving one another as you have loved us. Lord, that the world would see a people that have been changed, not by their own strength, but by the spirit of God, by the grace of God. And they would be drawn into the community of God because of you, Lord. All honor, all glory, and all praise to you. We pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen. All right, you can pass the cups to the outside and our, there we go. Rex will come and get them. We're going to continue our worship with our offering, and then we're going to close with a song. Thanks for being here tonight, guys. Have a great Thanksgiving.